This message was presented at the GYC 2012 conference in Seattle, Washington. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. All right. Well, let's get started. Welcome to Jesus, Arabic, and Kale, Power to Change the World. The title of my seminar will be Effective Missions, Moving Beyond Good Intentions. Now, it's, it's a little bit intimidating for me to follow up after Mindy and Petra, both of whom are, are very excellent and skilled and smooth presenters. So it's even more important than normal that we start out with prayer this morning. Our Father in heaven, this morning I ask that you send your Holy Spirit to this room. Please give me wisdom as I speak. Put your words in my mouth, your thoughts in my head. Lord, I also pray that the Holy Spirit will be an interpreter for me, so that if I am unclear in the things that I say, that people will perceive them clearly. If I happen to say something wrong, that you'll block that out. And speaking of blocking out, Lord, I pray that your angels would kick the devil and his angels out of this room, so we would have peace and your pure, sweet presence here this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. As you are no doubt aware, I am the fortunate husband of Petra. And as I was listening to Petra speak this morning and watching her, as for me watching her and even following her are two things that I'm rather accustomed to, I started remembering back to an earlier point in our relationship shortly after we became engaged. Now, when we got engaged, it was, it was a secret. We didn't really tell anyone for a while. But after about a month, we figured it, we should draw a few people in, particularly her parents. <clears throat> because she was not yet 21. And in the state of Maryland, we would need her parents' go-ahead. So at the time, I was working in the state of Maine at the U.S. Attorney's Office, and she was with her family in Maryland. And so I cut out of work a little bit early and drove all night down to Maryland and got up early the next morning. The whole family, like you can easily picture this, is sitting around the table, right? And they're wondering what in the world I'm doing there, having cut out of work, which is fairly unusual for me. You'll see a little later in the story, I tend to be very focused on work and getting things done. But they were, you know, all ears as to what was happening. And so various topics of conversation went round and round the table and I was just trying to gauge the situation and see, like, when is the right moment? How can I set this very important conversation up correctly? As I was looking around, I noticed that the grass in the front lawn and back lawn was pretty long. And in my family, we often show love and appreciation by doing stuff. And so I thought, here is the solution. I'll just get up and go mow the lawn and show that I'm kind of like a hard-working, upstanding sort of guy that will be able to support Petra, you know, the perfect son-in-law. So I jumped up, left the breakfast table, went out, fired up the mower. It was an old push mower, and started mowing. And the rest of the family's like, hmm? <laughs> and eventually, Petra's dad had to leave and go to work, so he was gone. And I was still mowing and mowing away. Now, Maryland, 4th of July, we're talking like 95 degrees with ridiculous humidity. 
So I'm pushing this mower and sweating and sweating and sweating, thinking very happy thoughts about how I'm giving myself the perfect setup. Meanwhile, Petra and her family are inside like, what's going on here? So I finished with the back lawn and moved toward the front lawn. There's a gate between the two. As I went through the gate, I failed to close the gate. Now, I not only failed to close the gate, but I failed to introduce you at this point to the main character of this story, whose name is Tinka. Tinka is a rambunctious, fun-loving, cute English bull terrier belonging to Petra's parents. Among her many attributes, staying at home is not part of the list. And so when Tinka saw this window of opportunity, she made a break for freedom, unobserved by anyone. In fact, it was only later, after I was just putting the mower back in the shed and coming into the house into what I thought would be kind of a triumphal entry, that I heard something that sounded like a weeping and gnashing of teeth. The family had discovered that the dog was gone. And they noticed that the gate was open and immediately realized that it was me who had left open the gate. But I was still feeling good and rosy with all this exercise and sweat, and I thought it might be possible to grab victory from the jaws of defeat. And so I said, look here, it's really easy. You know, Tinka, she's an extremely annoying, rambunctious, kind of aggressive dog. The first thing she's going to do is just go find someone, jump all over them, maybe knock down their kids. She's going to be straight to the pound. So let's just call the pound, that's where she's going to be. Now, if I had approached this a little more diplomatically and not used some of these negative words in describing the beloved family pet, (laughs) maybe would have gone to the pound. But we didn't. And I just need to parenthetically interject here that this story I'm telling, it's my version of the story. If Petra was up here, we might hear a slightly different version. So um, with that said, Petra and her mother and sister started walking through the subdivision. It was a very large subdivision with a lot of streets, walking along calling, Tinka, 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 and crying and crying and crying. I should have joined in with the calling and with the crying. (laughs) But I didn't. Instead, I kept harping on this fact that we needed to go check out the pound. Kept talking about how Tinka was just so annoying that she was bound to get in the pound sooner or later. And then when that seemed to not be having the desired effect, I inserted a few other golden nuggets like, why are you calling her? She never comes when she's called. Why do you think that she might come now? About two hours later, the girls were cried dry, and everyone was pretty grumpy. We came back home, contacted the pound, and she'd been there the whole time. And so I thought, you know, this is, this is my moment. It's been delayed quite a while. <laughs> but I started out in, in this speech of like, you know, guys, if you had just listened to me, we could have saved so much time. We could have gotten her read just immediately. And I was just kind of reaching the apex of this self-congratulatory speech when I realized what you have probably already realized. And that's that uh, my social standing with the family was somewhere below zero. Uh, In fact, it took me the rest of the week just to kind of get back on decent speaking terms with a lot of people, including Petra. 
And the right moment to, to ask these delicate questions never came around. In fact, I didn't end up talking to Petra's parents about our impending nuptials for another four months, which delayed our wedding considerably. We ended up having a year-long engagement, which, which I do not recommend. Like, personally, being engaged is miserable. It's like all of the bad sides of marriage, but none of the good points. If you're going to get engaged, it's a good idea to get married. At least that's my perspective. And so it was a pretty miserable time all around. <clears throat> I'm telling you this story for three reasons, one of which is that good intentions are not sufficient. When I went down to Maryland, I had the best possible intentions. When I mowed the lawn, when I gave suggestions on finding Tinka, it was all with the best intentions or at least as good of intentions as a young man can have when he wants to marry a girl who's out of his league. Um, <clears throat> but all my good intentions actually didn't help that much. They were counter-effective in the end, and it didn't work out at all as I planned. Now, I could have told you a number of sobering stories about how mission work sometimes ends up in a similar state how good intentions translate into stuff that is not only not effective, but highly detrimental. But thank goodness for Petra and Mindy, who insisted that we were going to keep all of these talks somewhat positive. And uh, I, I did not tell any of those stories, but, but keep in mind that there is a lot of mission work that goes forward with a lot of good intentions, but it fails in a similar way to my trip down um, and I'll get back to that in just a minute, but my second point is something important to, to get over at the outset, and that I'm not a perfect person. As you heard from the story, the way in which I went about perhaps the whole procedure, you know, it might have been a good idea to talk to Petra's parents even before I talked to Petra, but I didn't do that. I didn't go about this in the best possible way. And the same thing is true of me, even as a missionary. I've worked in Nepal and some in Honduras, Zimbabwe, and most recently managing a hospital in Ethiopia. And in none of those situations was I a shining example of what a missionary could and should be. It was more that I saw God working in spite of the mistakes that I made. I know that many of you in this room are more experienced missionaries than I am. We're honored to have some of them right here in the room. And I could make you stand up and bow or ask you to, but I, I may not do that. <clears throat> I want you to know that I'm sharing from my experience, from the experience of others, but I'm not standing before you as the complete missionary know-it-all. But You know, the main reason why I wanted to tell you this story about Tinka is that relationships turn out to be the most important thing, perhaps the only thing that really matters in the end. I've often seen missionary groups, particularly American and European and even Canadian missionary groups, particularly short-term groups, go to a place and really work hard on getting stuff done, like mowing the lawn, so to speak. Or they'll have really good ideas about how things could be done better, like finding the dog, so to speak when they may neglect the main reason why they went to be missionaries in the first place, which is building relationships with people to lead them to Jesus. And that is how 
sometimes missionary activities end up being ineffective in the same way that my trip to Maryland was singularly ineffective in getting Petra's go-ahead, Petra's parents' go-ahead for our, our marriage. We spend as missionaries a lot of time on doing and not a lot of time on connecting. And this theme of relationships and connectedness is something I want to come back to over the rest of the seminar. But for now, let me just flag that issue and we'll note it in different contexts as we go on. I do want to mention, as kind of an aside, I'll be mainly talking about missions as an international missions this morning. However, these same principles apply generally anytime you're helping anyone, which I hope many of you will, even as you pass some of these people on the street on the way back to your hotels today. So what are our effective missions? We've got some, some good and well-experienced people here. I'd be interested to see anyone want to hazard a couple sentences or a sentence or even a word. What makes missions effective? Any volunteers? Was that a hand or a hair stroke? <laughs> Can we get some hands? What makes missions effective? Yes? So sustainability. Yeah, that's definitely a big part of it. That's an interesting concept, and we'll come back to that. Anyone else want to put their oar into this debate, so to speak? What makes missions effective? Yes, Laurel? Yeah, I think that's definitely part of it for sure. Well, I'm going to incorporate a yes. Go ahead. Yeah, for sure. When I think of effective missions, the first thing that comes to mind is effective missions should be Christ-centered. And when I say Christ-centered, I'm meaning two things. One is it's important to remember that we cannot do anything without the power of Jesus in our lives. It is only through Jesus' power that we can reach anyone. And so at the very outset, she's been saving me ever since the first day, we need to be focused on Jesus. But it's not only Jesus' power that should be at the center of missions in our lives, it is also the message that we should have. And there are several different ways that I could go about describing how this should work, but Ellen White in Desire of Ages uh, does a, a far better job than I could ever do. So let me just read a, a short paragraph here. Ellen White's speaking about the Great Commission in Matthew, which Mindy talked about yesterday. And Ellen White is describing a little bit about how this should work. In the commission to his disciples, Christ not only outlined their work, but gave them their message. Teach the people, he said, to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. The disciples were to teach what Christ had taught, that which he had spoken not only in person but through all the prophets and teachers of the Old Testament is here included. Human teaching is shut out. There is no place for tradition, for man's theories and conclusions or for church legislation. 
No laws ordained by ecclesiastical authority are included in the commission. None of these are Christ's servants to teach. Missionary mission activities are effective to the degree that they are Christ-centered, both in the motivation and the message. When I think of effective missions, I also think of effective missions as being local. Local in, in several ways. First of all, effective missions should be locally led. Now that's sometimes difficult because there's not always a local person who is trained or even able to lead. In fact, many of you may go as missionaries to places where there are no Christians. There are people groups in the world. Right in Ethiopia, there is the Afar people group, five million people and basically zero Christians. So true local leadership in that environment could be very difficult. So the solution is, in those situations, missionaries have to go and become local become part of the community they serve, and I should say we serve, become part of the culture, learn the language, eat the food, and connect at a very deep level. It is only as we as missionaries become local that we can be effective leaders. Effective missions are also local in their priorities, and the way they meet needs. Now, when I was managing Gimby Avenue's Hospital, and before I was there, and even after I left, a lot of different kind people sent various things as donations. There was one group that, before I came, sent out a container full of small-wheeled walkers. <laughs> now, Gimby has very rough terrain and very rough roads, and a small-wheeled walker is is basically useless. In fact, in the end, we sold those small-wheeled walkers for scrap. There was also a man who contacted us. I think he was a carpenter, and he didn't have a lot of material resources to help us with, but he wanted to do something, and so we asked him to buy us a table saw blade. And he sent us that blade, because we had a really good table saw in Gimby. It's just our blade was worn out. With that table saw blade that he sent, we cut enough wood and shaped it to make furniture for our nursing college and for a large part of the hospital. So in the end, this one table saw blade was a whole lot more effective than the whole container of small-wheeled walkers. This is why effective missions need to be focused on local needs and local priorities. Now, when I say this, it's not always easy to figure out what the local needs and priorities are. I remember when I first came to Gimby, we would have administrative committee would call all the different leaders of the hospital together. And there'd be different issues we'd be confronting. And would discuss things. And uh, I would say, all right, here's the problem. And then I would say, look, here I think is the solution we should make. And, and here are the reasons why it would work well. Do you think that's a good idea? Yes, yes, yes. All right, should we vote for it? Sure. <laughs> then the people would leave and be like, that was such a bad idea. Paul just made us do it. And then naturally the idea would fall flat. It just never would work at all. In time, I started approaching it a little bit differently. would come to the meeting and I'd say, you know, someone who I don't really trust had this idea. (laughs) 
And I think it's probably a very bad idea. And here are some reasons why I think it's a bad idea. But it might work. So what do you think? By distancing myself a little bit from the idea, I could create a space in which we would all feel comfortable discussing what the real needs were, what the real priorities were, what the real solutions were. It's not always easy to find out what the real needs are, and it doesn't always happen fast, which is one possible sticking point for short-term missions is that during a short period of time, it's often difficult to ascertain what are the real needs of this community. Now, I think effective missions are also local not only in their priorities, but in the framework in which they fit. And one example I'll use from this is the example of some orphans. Now, many parts of the world have orphans, kids living on the street, and Gimby was certainly like that. Over the years, there are a variety of different approaches that we saw missionaries and Ethiopians taking to deal with these orphans. I'll mention two different approaches. There were many. Some were more effective than others. But one approach was a group of missionaries bought a house for some orphans, and they paid for food for these orphans, hired a cook for the orphans, and then paid their school bills. Unfortunately, what ended up happening is with all their needs cared for and no parental supervision of any kind, the orphans very quickly started getting into trouble, involved in petty theft, gradually more and more serious things, and actually uh, several of them, I I believe, are in jail now. Another group of missionaries noticed that there was a local woman who owned a restaurant. And with the proceeds from this restaurant, she would occasionally help orphans. So the missionaries started frequenting her restaurant, eating there regularly, occasionally giving a generous tip. And then when they saw an orphan who they thought needed help, they would speak with the owner of the restaurant and say, hey, any chance we could give you some money so you could help this kid? And that would provide the the child with, with a community, at least a surrogate parent in some way. And the children who were with this woman generally did far better than those who were just without that sort of local framework of support. So effective missions, I think, are local, locally led, focused on local needs and priorities, and also fitting in a local framework. Now, effective missions should also be sustainable. Sustainability is a tough thing, right? Because there's not very much sustainable stuff going on in the world right now. From the toilet paper we use to the cars we drive, very little in the world is actually sustainable. Still, it's true that unless missions are sustainable, in some way, it will be difficult to continue the impact for any length of time. More sustainable is usually more effective. And there's different levels on this, right? Um, So a, a classically unsustainable mission trip would be one in which people went to a poor area and gave away a large number of clothes and then left. That's unsustainable because after a short period of time, those clothes will be gone or worn out and there'll be not another source to keep those free clothes coming. Now, still somewhat unsustainable, but in a way much more sustainable would be, say, a surgeon who comes to an area or any physician performs some life-saving procedure. Even if they leave after five days, 
the person whose life they saved, that, that effect will continue for the rest of that person's life. So there's unsustainability and unsustainability in a way. And the basic measurement is, of course, will this keep going after I leave? But it's very important to think of sustainability not only in terms of a specific project, but also in terms of a community. And I'll give you an example of this with two different medical teams, short-term mission teams that came to Gimby. There was one team that came. They brought a lot of their medications and drugs from the U.S., went out to a rural village, set up a clinic, treated 500 patients for free in a few days, and then left. A side effect of that visit was that there were a couple local health workers in that village who ran their own little clinic. And they supported themselves by charging small fees for the services they provided to the community. When this short-term mission team came in and saw 500 patients, there were no more patients for these health workers to see. They couldn't continue their livelihood. So what did they do? They packed up their little shop and moved to another village. So at the end of the trip, that village actually had far less access to health care than it did before. The mission trip was not only unsustainable in itself, but also what it did for the village was very unsustainable. Now, there was another team that came and did a lot of similar stuff. They came, went out to a rural village for just a short period of time, and they treated a bunch of patients for free, but they did it differently. They contacted the local clinic in that area and worked with the clinic, and here's how they did it. For every patient that they treated for free, they paid the clinic what the clinic would have gotten from those patients. So the clinic's financial stability was actually increased considerably. They also worked with the people in that local clinic. And it worked out well for the patients, right? Because even though these American doctors and nurses were very skilled and educated, they hadn't been seeing tropical diseases on an everyday basis, whereas the Ethiopian health workers had. And then, of course, the Americans had a lot of skills and education that the Ethiopians didn't have. So in treating patients together, there was an exchange of information that benefited both sides. So in that case, when this American team left, they left the clinic with a way better public image. Why? Well, it was through this clinic that 500 people had gotten free care. That was really good for the clinic and their relationships with the community, the government, everyone. It was also good for the clinic because... They had there the money for treating 500 patients. It was also good for the clinic because those people at the clinic had, had learned a few things from the team that came. So at the end of the trip, the community's access to health care had been improved. If you think about it, the differences between those trips were relatively small. But the impacts were quite large and very, very different. This is why when we think of sustainability, it's important to think not only in terms of the project, but the community as a whole. But there's another part to sustainability, and that's personal sustainability. Missionary burnout is one of the main problems in mission work. And there's almost nothing less effective than a burned-out missionary. It's very important for missionaries to take time to rest. And furloughs usually not rest. At least it wasn't for Petra and I. 
It means a lot of going around and networking with different people and speaking at different churches and raising money for different projects. It's harder work than almost anything else. It's important to take time to rest. And it's important not only for missionaries to recognize this, but also for those of you who support missionaries to encourage the missionaries to take time to rest and recharge. And, and, and no, furlough really doesn't fit that bill always, if ever. It's also important in, things, in terms of thinking of uh, sustainability, not only in the personal context, but overall, to think in terms of teams. If in any given project, there is any person who is necessary for that project, like as in the project cannot survive without that person, you're looking at an unsustainable project. In order for a project to be sustainable, the team has to be strong enough and big enough that if one person goes here or there, the project can continue moving without running into a roadblock. What often happens in mission work is there aren't enough people in the team, and so missionaries feel trapped. They know if they leave, everything will fall apart, and so they keep working and working and working and burning out and burning out and burning out. And it becomes a very serious problem in the end. So sustainability is important, not only financially, but also for the whole community. And personal sustainability is critically important, too. Effective missions focus on relationships. We already talked a little bit about this, but... I'll point out something that most of you, I'm sure, know, and that is that for the vast majority of the world, and you can call it the majority world, relationships are far more important than accomplishing tasks. So when we go to the majority world, we need to understand that mindset and in some ways adopt it. And really, in theological terms, it's right. I mean, think of this. If you go and build a church or a school or dig a well, at the very best, at the very best, it will last until the second coming. But if you form a relationship with someone and lead them to Jesus, that's a relationship that may last forever. So when we think about what we do on mission trips, we need to think in terms of what will last and what will not last. I also want to make a couple points somewhat related to relationships. Uh, One is about what I call cultural bridges. Let me explain what I mean by cultural bridges. In Ethiopia, what sometimes happens after a woman gives birth is that they'll be carrying a very heavy load a few days after delivery and their uterus will fall out and sometimes stay prolapsed like that for the rest of their life. After a few years in Gimby, we realized this was a very serious issue, and so we started arranging for various corrective surgeries. There was a team from Oregon that came out to help us with this sort of project. Even though they only came for a very short time, their visit was very effective, and one of the reasons was they had good cultural bridges. It started with the fact that one member of the team in Oregon was actually originally from Ethiopia. And... She, of course, knew some American culture and Ethiopian culture. She was one link of the bridge. Then there were those of us in Ethiopia who were somewhat used to Ethiopian culture, but also Americans. 
And then we had some Ethiopian staff who were very much part of Ethiopian culture themselves, but also aware of how to deal with Americans, particularly American doctors, who are not always easy to work with. I mean, well, let's face it. As a result of this good cultural bridge, a group of doctors from Oregon, many of whom had never left the U.S., were able to effectively touch the lives of women who had lived in remote and rural villages. And the reason was there was this good cultural bridge running between the groups. I should add, however, that life as a cultural bridge is very stressful. When this team left, and they came repeatedly, and so we would see the cycle, whenever they would leave, we would all kind of crash. A bunch of our staff would get sick, we would get sick, and work kind of ground to a halt, and we never really recovered for about a month after the team came. So, yes, we need to remember that cultural bridges are critically important, particularly for short-term missions. But also, we have to understand that life for the cultural bridges is not easy. Cultural bridges are valuable, so they should be handled with care. What I'm going to say next may seem really obvious, but it has some some implications that I think are a little bit profound, at least. Effective missions should be others-centered. This first came to my mind when I was talking with a woman named Crystal. Crystal is a German Lutheran missionary who's worked in Ethiopia for about 25 years. And she was working at a hospital called Ira that was a few hours down the road from our hospital in Gimby. So sometimes we'd get together from the two hospitals and, and share ideas and share challenges. And I remember one day we were talking with her at our house, I think it was over supper, about our staffing problems. And we noticed that we had a large number of staff who were in their 40s, 50s, and 60s who were very well-trained, very experienced, could easily have gotten better-paying jobs in easier working environments. But they were still there. We also noticed there were a bunch of younger staff who would come in, get a little experience, and leave. Come in, get a little experience, and leave. And there's this, this revolving door sort of effect. And so as we talked about this with Crystal, we said, hey, let's, let's check this out. Let's ask a bunch of people, and let's, let's try and figure out more about what's going on and why. And we did. Uh, And I'll tell you by using one example kind of what the the general overall trend was that we saw. Uh, There's a guy who still works at the hospital whose name is Ashaber. Now, Ashaber in Amharic means terrorist. It's a name typically given by mothers to babies who are very active during the pregnancy. So you'll meet a lot of Ashabers in Ethiopia, and this particular Ashaber stayed active after he was born, and is a very active sort of a driver. Um, but he, he turned down, actually, a number of opportunities to work for the United Nations, also to work for various embassies, including the U.S. Embassy, in order to stay and work in Gimby. And he, in order to put this in perspective, in some of these other jobs, he'd have been earning like salaries measured in thousands of dollars, in Gimby, his salary couldn't even be measured in hundreds of dollars. So the sort of sacrifice he was making is very, very remarkable to stay on in Gimby. And so you know, after talking with Crystal, I had a chat with Ashburn. I said, 
why are you still here? Because you've got all these other job offers. Why are you here? And I'll never forget what he told me. He sat up really straight and he said, I'm a missionary. And he told me about a guy named Harold Giebel, who was a doctor in Gimby some years ago. And how Dr. Giebel had sponsored him, worked with him, mentored him, and then when Dr. Giebel had very unfortunately had to leave, he had a chat with Ashburn and said, I'm leaving, but please stay on and help the hospital. And Ashaber is still there today, as are many people that were sponsored by Dr. Giebel and some of those people in those years. What we actually notice in the end is that when missionaries come for shorter and shorter periods of time, the local people tend to stay at institutions also for correspondingly shorter periods of time. Because sacrifice breeds sacrifice. And, you know, isn't this what missions are supposed to be, out, be about in the first place? I mean, think about this. Jesus came from heaven to this dark, evil, and sinful world to die for us. Should it really be so surprising if he asked us to give up homes, families, careers, money, maybe even risk our lives so that others can have the same chance to choose him? If you think about it, the core of Christianity is the cross. It's the sacrifice of Jesus for us. And if we, as missionaries, do not put this focus in our missionary efforts, do not enroll other people into the vision of Christianity as a religion of sacrifice for others, we convert people to a Christianity that doesn't place the same value on people who are are different from us, which basically can lead to what Petra talked about in the last hour. You know, I've been on a number of short-term mission trips, and sometimes at the end of the trip, as we're flying back on the plane, you know, these conversations on the plane on the way back from the short-term mission trips, we will be talking about the trip, and, and we'll say, you know, I really feel like I got more out of this trip than I gave. And, and when, when we say that, uh, it's not that we're talking in spiritual terms, because we all understand it's more blessed to give than receive. So when we give, there is always a spiritual blessing. However, there have been some times when I went on a short-term mission trip where at the end of the trip, I knew good and well I got more out of the trip than I gave. Like, I learned how to do a lot about concrete construction. I learned a lot about how to deal with other cultures. I got more than I was able to bring to the table. And, you know, this is an area in which I think we often, sadly, underestimate the intelligence of the people we are serving. Because people in the developing countries are very quickly able to see which people are gaining more experience than they are giving. And if someone comes as a missionary and says, I am coming as a missionary, but that person is actually getting more out of being a missionary than they are giving, it's sending a message about Christianity, about the Christianity of the missionary themselves, and it's a a message that does have an impact. And perhaps it's not one that, that we should seek to make. 
Now, there is time to learn. And there's nothing wrong with going on trips to learn and grow. How many of you have gone on a short-term mission trip? Yeah. Well, me too. And I know on some of these trips, I definitely got more than I gave. And, and there is a time to learn and grow. And I, I don't want to, to tell you that all your experience was in vain, because I certainly hope it wasn't for me. Part of this, I think, is that as we learn and grow, if there is one circumstance in which we have gotten more than we have given, we hope that with what we have gotten, we can then give in another context. It's also true that we can still be effective even if we are gaining more than we are giving as long as we recognize what is going on. I remember a group that came to Gimby that did this very well. It was a youth group from Norway. A lot of them were teenagers. And before they came, they got a good orientation. And and when we had them arrive in Gimby, we oriented them again. And they understood very well that although they would try and help in various ways, they were going to learn more on this trip than they were going to be able to teach or share or show in many ways. And because they understood that, we were able to talk to our staff and say, these people from Norway, they're coming to learn. And so we need you to help them. And in fact, some of these Norwegian kids, they don't know Jesus. So we need you to share Jesus with these people who are coming. And it made the whole atmosphere of the trip much different than it otherwise would have been. We actually paired off the Ethiopians with a Norwegian as much as possible, or sometimes a few Norwegians with one Ethiopian, and they did a variety of different things. And here is where I want to come to another point, and that is what we do as missionaries, the sort of projects we take on, says something about the God we serve, And it may make a a powerful impact beyond what we think. And that can be both positive and negative. In the case of the Norwegians, we had them come and plant trees. Deforestation is a huge problem in Ethiopia, as it is in many countries. How many of you guys have been to a country where deforestation is a problem? Yeah, a lot of places deforestation is huge. One of the issues, at least in Ethiopia, is there are a number of people who, who don't understand why trees are important even within our own hospital garden department, there are a couple people that would just go around and chop down trees without really understanding the benefit that the trees could could have. So when we brought this group of Norwegian kids to come in and plant trees, there were some really interesting discussions going back and forth between our Ethiopian garden staff and these Norwegian kids about, like, you came here to plant trees? What was really cool, though, was not that the Norwegian kids planted 700 trees. It was that after they left, our garden department, which had not for about the previous 15 years planted any trees, planted another 3,000 trees. It's possible for us to make major impacts in local communities by the sort of things we choose to do. But it's also possible that we can have negative impacts in the things we do. You know, if I look around North America, what I've seen in Europe and Canada, I've seen many beautiful churches that are big and and wonderful and, and mostly empty. And in many developing countries I've visited, the churches are poorly constructed and bursting at the seams. 
One reason for this is there's a difference in the priorities of how budgets are used. Churches in the U.S. typically spend more than half of their money paying their pastors or other staff and another third maintaining the church structure with a, a small part left over for other things. I know in our church in Gimby, they took up two offerings every week. One op- offering to support the church, the other to support the local poor, and the amounts in the offerings were about equal. I'm not saying that building churches is a bad thing. I think churches are very good, and often it's a great way to serve people. However, I do think that overall, in terms of priorities, perhaps the majority world has this one right. If we're talking about what's going to last forever into eternity, the churches won't last forever. But the relationships we build with communities will. So I think when we go as short-term missionaries, it's very important for us to think carefully about what sort of things we are emphasizing. And again, this can be very positive. Petra's dad is a dentist, and he's gone to a number of different places to Russia quite frequently. And by him going someplace as a dentist, it it places an emphasis for the people and the places he visits on the importance of oral, oral hygiene, which is extremely important. It's much cheaper to have all your teeth than a bunch of teeth filled with gold. Uh, among many other things. So uh, all those things are, are critical here. See, I'm, I'm running a little short on time. I, I want to come to a very difficult topic, one in which uh, I'm glad that I had a couple people at the door checking to make sure that none of you are bringing tomatoes and potatoes in here. Uh, <clears throat> and that's the topic of giving. How many of you, when you visit another country, have ever been asked for something? Like money, food, clothes, school? Yeah, it happens to all of us. That's a really tough issue, and I do not have all the answers for this one. But fortunately, the Bible does at least have a good place to start. If you turn to Matthew chapter 6, it's a very familiar passage. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 2. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. If when we give, we give in such a way that the recipient does not know that it was us who gave, it's at least a very good start toward dealing with the issue of giving. Something else that I've seen help in many circumstances is when we go as missionaries, and I talked about this some earlier in another context, if as much as possible we integrate with the culture we are seeking to serve, if we eat the same food, speak the same language, live in similar homes, live at a similar level, if we make ourselves poor as others around us are poor, we will have less space between ourselves and others in our relationships and less problems with people besieging us with requests for different things. Finally, 
we need to be very clear about the responsibilities that come with giving. So I'm going to tell you a story which hopefully you'll be able to relate to, even though I'm making it up. Let's just suppose that somewhere in your community here in America, there's a very poor family. And this poor family, sometimes one or both parents are totally out of work. And so you and other people in the community occasionally bring a few clothes or a few cans of food to help them in various times. And this Christmas is Christmas, and you have a couple extra coats and a few cans of beans, and you you go to their house to give them this stuff so they'll have something to eat and wear over the holidays, and it's getting colder. So you walk up to the door, you're just about to open it when the door flies open, and out walks Bill Gates. And you look inside the house, and like, whoa, there's flat screen TVs in every room. They've got this huge Christmas tree, and there's presents everywhere. So much stuff is just incredible. You're like, ooh. I wish I had one of those TVs. Um, So you take your cans of beans and your coats, and you go and give them to another person who's poor. And in fact, a couple months later, when you happen to have some some other spare cans of soup or something, you don't take them back to the person who Bill Gates just unloaded all the goods on. You take them to another poor family. This is exactly what happens when you, as a foreigner... Give money to someone in a local culture. I've seen this happen many times when an American will give money to a poor person that cuts that person off from their community support base. So quite often the person is worse off than they were before. And sometimes I can give very simple examples for this. There were a couple of street kids who were just wearing rags. And some missionaries said, oh, the poor street kids. They went and bought them some really nice, fancy clothes. Ten minutes later, a group of uh, like local bigger kids had beat them up and taken the clothes. And since the missionary had taken and burned the rags, the kids were stark naked and had nothing. Sometimes it doesn't take long for our charity to have negative results. So we have to be aware that when we give, we're creating an ongoing relationship that may last as long as the recipient lives. Of course, you remember I said earlier about giving in secret? If you help someone and they don't know, and no one knows that it's you who helped them, we've just avoided this whole problem, right? That's one reason why it can be very important to not let people know that you are the one behind the charity. I think there are also some priorities and levels of things when we give to people. Uh, And I have to be careful here because there's a time for everything. But in general, money is probably not the best thing to give. Food is a little better. The best thing I've seen so far is helping people with education. Because when people become educated, able to support themselves, able to support their communities, then you don't have to keep helping them anymore. And they can go on to help others. It's sustainable and in a way self-replicating because one person who gets educated is able to have a good income, they start helping their relatives. And I've seen this happen. Of all the gifts you can give, education is, I think, probably close to the top of the list. And should any of you want to to help any people, I have a list of of names of people who need help, so see me afterwards. But (laughs) as we give, we need to keep well in mind the responsibilities that giving creates. As I finish, I want to mention just a a few more points. 
about short-term missions in general. Change takes time. It's very difficult to make lasting change in a short time. So short-term missions can be very effective in supporting something that already exists. It's very difficult for short-term missions to make lasting changes. Now, I saw this several times in, in Ethiopia where very good physicians would come and they would try and change the way nurses did one thing or another thing. And the nurses would say, yes, yes, no problem. And two weeks later when the doctor was gone, things would be right back to the way they were before. And when the next doctor came, we went through the whole process again. And this would repeat itself to the degree that when someone finally came and stayed a long time and tried to make lasting change, it was much harder than it would have been if there hadn't been all these other kind of like short changes in between. So when we go as short-term missionaries, there's one very simple rule that I've, I've used for myself and I've seen it work out. As a short-term missionary, the locals are always right. That's not always easy because when you go into a place, it's, it's, you see all kinds of things that could be changed and fixed and ways things could be done better. But in the end, it will be very difficult to make any of the changes you're suggesting last. So short-term trips, it can be good, but it's more of supporting and less about changing things. Change takes time, and it's best made by people who are part of the community that's being changed. So I'll just uh, run briefly through the points that I made one more time, uh, because unlike Mindy, I don't have them all neatly summarized in, in PowerPoint. In fact, it's a little bit scattered here. Effective missions are Christ-centered, not only in the message, but also in the power behind the message. Effective missions are locally led, focused on local needs and fit into the local framework. Table saw blades, not containers of small-wheeled walkers. The restaurant helping the orphans, not giving the orphans a house. Effective missions focus on relationships, not just projects. Remember, Tinka and my lawn mowing debacle. Effective missions use cultural bridges, but understand that the bridges may need some TLC as well. Effective missions are other-centered. If you get more out of the trip than you're giving, the locals probably know that, and that's probably not going to help you be an effective missionary. Missions are effective to the degree that we integrate with the people we are serving. It's easier to do this on long-term missions than short-term missions. Giving, it's a moral imperative. When we're confronted by the sort of raw need we see in third-world environments, it's almost immoral not to give and help. However, we need to do so in a manner that's biblical and responsible. Finally, effective missions are Christ-centered. Yep, that's the first point and the last. I think our time is, is pretty much finished here. So thank you very much. I really appreciate your attention. And I'm looking forward to the rest of the seminar. Before we end, um, I'd like to ask uh, 
us to, to come together and pray a little bit for those people who are still in the mission field in long term. Petra and I recently lift, left Gimby and uh, we're working in, soon to be working in Florida. But a number of people, even some here, are long-term missionaries and they need our prayers. So today I'd like us to stand together and I'll have a prayer for those who are our long-term missionaries. Our Father in heaven, I ask your blessing on all of your children around the world and specifically on those of your children who are dedicating large parts of their lives to serving you in areas of need. I pray that you give them strength, courage, wisdom, and I pray that you continue to inspire the rest of us so that we too can effectively be your servants. I pray this in your holy name. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.